That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. There was a constant conversation about we can't find black people or we don't know how to access people of color. Yet I was always present and never really invested in until I began to demand, like fully demand accountability. From Offscript Media, I am Matthew Zachary, and this is Out of Patience. Today on the show, another Wayback Machine throwback episode with my dear friend and fellow survivor advocate, Mema Carmo. Mema is an author, speaker, coach, podcaster, manifester, convener, and founder and CEO of the Tiger Lily Foundation, which pretty much makes her a unicorn. Let's just leave it at that. She's a unicorn. Okay, unicorn. So join us as we take a trip down memory lane to a time before iPhones, Android, Facebook, Twitter, and the original Kung Fu Panda movie. Yes, look it up, kids. I'm talking about 2007 and the dawn of the young adult cancer movement. From Liberian refugee to misdiagnosed triple negative breast cancer patient to self-proclaimed, and I quote, chemo-induced nonprofit founder, end quote, MAMA has been a dominant voice speaking out on the issues of healthcare disparities and invisible suffering in the black community. There's pretty much nothing this woman can't do, and you're about to find out how and why. Enjoy the show. MAMA, thank you so much for coming on Out of Patience. It's been a long time coming. We go back a grilling years to the Cenozoic era of the early young adult cancer movement when we first met with our rapscallion gang of uh, up-and-coming rabble-rousing. The idea was that we were trying to do something that hadn't been done before and figure out how we all face the same direction to bring some equity and some dignity to the young adult cancer movement because we didn't ask to be there. It kind of shows us in a way. So let's start with your origin story. How did you find your way to Austin that year? Because no one asked to get cancer. I don't even know how I got there. I just know that I remember, you know, getting diagnosed and not having anybody my age that I knew who had cancer, any kind of cancer. Like you, I began to just ask questions and show up at, you know, conferences and churches and just kind of like I was just craving support and connection and a way to use what was happening to me for better, you know, for a bigger purpose. And I think through some sort of patient connection, I ended up you know, in Texas and met all you guys. I think it was like Johnny, Heidi, Tamika, all these people. It was really great because it gave me the sense that I was no longer alone. It was not that, you know, there were other people like you guys who were doing some really badass things. And it was awesome. It's always best when you have no idea what you're doing, but you know you got to do something. <laughs> exactly. People, people would always ask, would ask me, what are you doing and what are your goals? I'm like, I have no freaking idea, but I'm going, I'm going someplace really fast. Yeah, we're in a bus. Hang on tight. Someone's at the wheel. We're just going to go for the ride. And, and here we are, like literally 15, 16 years later. But I, I do want to make a, a very specific point to our listeners that you had a, a cancer called triple negative 
breast cancer. And the first time I had ever heard that was through this joke who someone was diagnosed with it and they thought, wow, I'm I'm negative for breast cancer times three. And they thought it was good news. But it isn't terribly good news. I think they should rebrand it to something much more displeasantly sounding than triple negative. But how are you? It's so rare. How were you diagnosed? What were your symptoms? You know, I my mom is amazing. She taught me breast exams at 13 years old. And so I remember her talking about saying you do your breast exam and know your body is going to change over, you know, as you grow. And if you know what to expect and what the changes are, you know what doesn't belong there. And so, you know, we didn't go into the whole, you know, disease state because I, I don't think we even thought it would happen to me. But what she gave me was a gift of like knowing my body, knowing what to look for, in knowing what was normal. And so 18 years later, taking a shower, there was a lump there. And I go to my, oh, my OBGYN and I'm like, there's something there. And she, she, you know, had a healthy relationship. And that's something most people don't have with their doctors, a healthy relationship. At the time, people weren't getting screenings at 31 years old for breast cancer. And so having her agree to give me a mammogram and then refer me to a breast surgeon was pretty awesome. The surgeon then told me that the mammogram had come back clean and I had no evidence of cancer and to go home and live my life. And I had to push for over six months to get diagnosed. So finally, I got her to give me a biopsy, and it turned out I had triple negative breast cancer, which is the most aggressive breast cancer. Um, they told me I had, had the good kind of breast cancer. But what I found out because there's that a triple- good kind of breast cancer. <laughs> yeah, right. What I found out, like, not only is it the worst kind to have, but it's the most aggressive type of breast cancer. And one until until a few months ago, there was no targeted treatment for that kind of breast cancer. So. It was like having a triple threat, you know, and not having any direct treatment and being told, we'll throw the whole bucket at you, all the buckets at you, and then go out and live your best life and hope you survive. So it was pretty, pretty scary. Like literally thrown to the wolves after being misdiagnosed. I've done a bunch of shows that I I, I like to metaphorically call them like the chutzpah shows because some people are born with chutzpah. Some people chutzpah is forced upon them. You tend to have this embedded chutzpah (laughs) that I know in you for so long, but you weren't expecting to have to channel it so much because didn't you presume, oh, they're going to look out for me. They're going to know what's right for me and make decisions. Then wham, you had to kick into like downshift to second gear and say, hold on, folks, what the hell's actually happening? Yeah, I didn't. You know, first of all, I thought I had done all the right things. I've been doing breast self-exams since I was 13. I found a lump by doing a breast self-exam. Uh, so I was doing the right thing by knowing my body and doing my self-exams. I saw my doctor when I found the lump. Right away, I asked her for a screening, which I got. I went and saw a surgeon to make sure that we could figure out how to get it out of my body. You know, so I never thought I'd have a doctor tell me that I didn't have cancer when I, in fact, did have cancer, which is the worst kind. Also that I get a test, an anagram, which would tell me that the mammal said I was cancer-free, that there was no evidence of cancer, I was a cyst. So not only was the doctor, you know, jacked up, but the test was wrong. And the doctor and I ended up at some point arguing, and she's like, the mammogram is not wrong. You know, you don't have cancer. And I said, I was like, the test that will diagnose me has not yet been created. And she's like, that doesn't make any sense. And I'm like, this is wrong. It's terribly wrong. And she called me back after six months of pushing after I finally got the biopsy and she was wrong. Um, it's never apologized though. But I wonder how many patients don't have the balls to keep persisting, what well, to know what to do, to, kill, to know their bodies, to look for symptoms, to be in tune, to keep thinking, you know what? 
I don't really feel right. This doesn't feel, this is not normal. And then to go to the doctor and if they say no, get second, third opinion, hire and fire accordingly until you have the right answer for your body. Yeah, I mean, I'm on the fence about that for many reasons, the least of which is that not everyone can just, quote unquote, be your own advocate. And I've been on this rant about people that say, oh, just you have to be your own advocate. What if it's not baked into you? What if you do come from a different education level, background level, cultural level where you just listen to the doctors? Where who's protecting you? Who's who's going to help add that STP to your gas tank and give you the moxie you need that you didn't know you had to continue to question these doctors? I think that's an, a potentially answerable solution more today than it was because we have people like you and organizations that people can turn to to learn what that means. But I did want to ask you the question of all questions that I get us all the time is why the hell did we start nonprofits? Oh my God, because we're crazy and stupid. <laughs> <laughs> Therapize I mean, me. Why? Why? Why do we do why, this? Why? Why? I mean, I, I think because I was on drugs. I was on chemotherapy. I didn't know what I was, fuck Wait, I was doing. Chemotherapy I mean, induced nonprofits. All right. We have a new band name. <laughs> yeah. I mean, exactly. There are days when I'm like, if I knew what I knew now, I would never have done this. But also, I know that I could not have done this. Like, this is who I am. To answer your first question, you asked me, like, some people don't don't have the the chutzpah or know how to even self advocate. Maybe they've been taught not to ask questions. Maybe they just are don't know what to ask for. And so, you know, as we're telling people to become advocates because we have the balls to freaking ask for what we want. What I realized, I want to help the girls who don't know what they don't know. There are so many people out there who don't know what they don't know. They don't know that they should be asking about family health history. They don't know they should be asking their doctor for how to do self-exams. They don't know they should be asking for a clinical trial. They don't know how to even talk to a doctor. They don't have health insurance. And so for me, building Tiger Lily was a way to help people. Like I just literally sat in bed in treatment and I just mapped in my head, like what are all the things that people don't get because they don't know what to ask for? What are things they're asking for that they don't get? What are things doctors aren't offering to patients of different colors and ethnic backgrounds or age groups? I wanted to solve the problem and so I thought, you know what, I'll just start and I'll build it. And people were like, you're out of your freaking mind. Like, this is a freaking, <laughs> it's never going to work. And I, I'm telling you, there are days where I was like, I just can't. I think I, one time I called you and I was like, how many times do you want to quit? And you said every day because it's so much work. But then when you look back at the work over 14 years from me looking back and people are always saying, oh my God, how do you do all this work? I'm like, you know, if we don't do it, then who's going to do it? And if we don't do it now, then when? And if we don't do it, people people are going to die because they're not getting access and resources and education and the word you hate the most, advocacy. <laughs> so right, exactly. I mean, it's always the it's always the how you do it. Like I don't know, I just kind of did it. Kind of like, what's it like raising twins? Well, I don't know. I only have had twins, right? So <laughs> exactly. you can't possibly know. But then you're also you're the overnight success that took twenty years to become an overnight success. And you know, it's always the the other way that people look at what you've accomplished, but. I mean, in hindsight, yeah, do I regret starting to pick cancer? Of course not, because it became my path and I leaned in and I, before the word leaning in was leaning in, you just double down and do the thing because it works. But you're right. If, if we didn't do it, it wouldn't get done. And it does go back to the Margaret Mead nature of that first meeting in Austin in 2006, when I think we first met, where you had the nonprofit. I had, I'm too young for this, before it was stupid cancer. It was planet cancer. There was MMM Angels. 
none of us had any idea what we were doing. We had <laughs> thoughts and wishes, and, but I think the incubation- And no money. No money. <laughs> money? What's money? A grant? Hi, grant people. Give me a dollar donors. That, that was where we were at. Totally scrapping together those salad days as the best metaphor. But, you know, we were a band of brothers. We were a band of sisters. We were just a band of people that collectively as our own little incubator, I'll use your word, manifested change because we had to get it done. So let's look at the the overnight success of Tiger Lily that took 15 years. What, 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 if you were to put your finger on like two or three specific things that it has accomplished, what would those be for our listeners? You know, I, I feel like, first of all, there's the idea of what's possible. You know, what we did is we literally created our own Xanadu, right? We, we, we were like, we saw this thing that didn't exist. It was a fantasy in people's minds. And we all kind of different. I mean, imagine you in New York and, and Johnny in Chicago and Tamika in DC and me in Virginia having these same energies and ideas. And we literally came together and found others of us. And it was for me that was like, oh, this is really possible. This is really, this can really happen because it's not just me. So it was giving, and as we all kind of congealed together and grew, we gave, you know, we began to make the word patient advocacy a powerful thing to the point where, you know, almost every organization in, in, in pharma now has a patient advocacy you know, um, group that where they support Tiger Lily and other groups like yours and Tamika's. So we made something that wasn't possible, a place of power, you know, like the patients now are at the driver's seat, right? So back then it was like the patient was on the ground, then there was a nurse navigator, then there was a doctor and then a scientist, which you can never touch. And we flipped the script over time. So I think for me, that's been the most powerful thing to see how the industry has changed to where the patients are now becoming as powerful as the scientists and the industry partners. Um, I also feel like, um, you know, working to create policy change has been really powerful for me. When I began advocating, I didn't know I could do anything around, you know, getting a law passed. I just was like, I never shut the hell up. <laughs> so, you know, talking about things often and, and loudly propelled me to Capitol Hill. And then I worked to pass the Breast Cancer Early Act, which ensured that the CDC supported and oversaw this law that, you know, gave funding to nonprofits supporting AYA programs in the breast cancer space and created national campaigns. And that was something I had no idea that I could do. So making AYA in, in breast cancer, I mean, it's now a standard of care. Like people have AYA programs within many hospital centers that were didn't exist before. And then also now with our disparities work, helping young black women to see and men to see what's possible that you could become, you could have an idea that was in the, the impossible idea. And then you could believe in yourself and find another band of bandits <laughs> that were like you. And then at some point you're now telling, you know, global partners how to create change in a way that serves your population. So I think those things are ways that I've created change, but also I, I didn't let go of myself. You know, I also write and I, you know, create card decks and I blog and podcasts. And so I also think that people forget who they are sometimes. And you can, certainly can't forget who you are when you're becoming and growing an organization. You have to find time to, you know, be a parent, be a person, have fun, you know, um, create stuff and, and live your life. Back with our guest, 
after the break. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. So, Mama, let's dig into your origin story as an African-American woman, literally born in Liberia, came across the ocean when you were younger. When I joined the Young Adult Cancer Universe, it wasn't very diverse. And between you and another shout out to Tamika, I had never experienced understanding cancer as nothing other than just a, a white guy from Brooklyn. And so much wisdom was just waiting to be shared and under uh, the undiscovered country revealing the differences, the disparities in the African-American culture with cancer. You were and remaining still to be these days, one of the leading voices and advocates. I mean, you call yourself a manifester. I agree with that. You also convene. I've used that word before, but talk to our listeners about what it has been like for you as an African-American female in this country living with and thankfully very happily beyond triple negative breast cancer and convening other communities like people like you who didn't know they could have a voice and a home and, and peer support. Thanks for asking that. So I, you know, my experience being in this space was really interesting I hear people discussing diversity and a lack of diversity and lack of inclusion and things like that. And, you know, I, I, I say to people now, like I was, I've been in this space for 14 years and for 12 of those years, 12 and a half of those years, you know, I got little or nothing in terms of investment from companies where there are big organizations getting millions of dollars to pay CEOs half a million dollars a year or to do walks or runs or create brochures. And, you know, I, here I was on the ground with patients so initially, you know, being a black woman in this space, it was like, well, people weren't paying me attention. I wasn't getting financial support from funders. Um, they didn't take it seriously. They already had people they wanted to support. And it was just kind of like it was so hard because everything was like there are these 20 year old organizations or 30 year old organizations. And I had to kind of continue to push my head against the wall. And I was like, what is it? I'll be honest, being that I was born in Liberia and immigrated here. I didn't think of color as being an issue at first. I just, I just thought maybe I don't know the right thing to say and I don't have the right partner. So I kept pushing and pushing and and moving into where I felt I needed to be. But after a while, I sat back and I thought, wait a minute, let me see who's who's being invited to be at these panels and be at these tables and who's getting support. And it wasn't the, you know, 
young black women get run organizations. It was, you know, white male woman led. Um, and it really bothered me because I hear these, you know, when I would be at San Antonio Brest or ASCO or watching things online, there was a constant conversation about, you know, we don't, we can't find black people or we don't know how to access people of color when it comes to so-and-so and so. Yet I was always present and never really invested in until I begin to demand, like fully demand accountability, which I'm doing now. Yeah, turning your volume up to 11. As you, as yeah, you, just you love to stop do. being so freaking nice. Stop yeah. being nice and be like, what the fuck? Yeah. Like, what? Is, seriously. Um, the convening part was like, I really thought that if people are convening tables without me there, I need to rec- recognize my own power and convene my own damn table. So versus asking why I'm not at your table, I want to get people together who need to understand what they're dealing with, how to deal with it, and, and, you know, in the cancer space and beyond. So you mentioned, like, you know, our listening summits. We did a lot of that with the Black community, with the Mets community, with early stagers and people of different colors. And then on the other side is, you know, how do you live your best life? And so, you know, I had monthly brunches and, you know, I um, got women together to do, you know, manifest summits to think about beyond cancer and beyond trauma. How do you manifest your best life in so I find that building community is really what I'm about. So that's what I do in, in cancer space and in life in general. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the notion of finding your tribe is unique to everyone. You don't know what specific issue you're going to bond with the most over whatever bad things, when bad things happen to good people. But the Young Adult Cancer Movement was unique in the sense that it really created a a true sense of uh, the end of isolation or the potential for the end of isolation. And similar to what the breast cancer community started doing in the late 90s, young adult cancer did across all the tumors. But the notion of, you know, white with brain cancer versus black with breast cancer versus Hispanic with testicular cancer, there's so many different mathematical permutations. But this idea of that there's someone like you that you can relate to and we're going to introduce you to them, you did that. You brought together hundreds and hundreds of women from the black community to, I mean, you say manifest, to commune, to, to, to share their stories. There's so much data now, finally, that actually corroborates what we do has a clinical outcome. Introducing people to people like them improves your quality of life. So have you done any i mean yes you pass bills i do want to focus like it's hard to get a bill passed so kudos on you to get bills passed <laughs> let's just that's a whole separate show how to get a bill passed but don't ask <laughs> i know i know i know but <laughs> I, i've tried trust me so just the mere fact that you have built a community that now has given so much life to so many people where do you see that scaling? How does that move into the fact that different drugs are coming out and now there's clinical research and we talked about even accessing more people being open to receiving community? I don't know. It's kind of, it's really um, humbling to be able to see the work that we've done. You know, like you, I don't look back a lot. When I do, I'm like, oh my God, how did, how did I do that? You know, like I like yeah, I took one step at a time. I was like, okay, you know, how do I create community, and how do I help people be empowered, and how do I help to figure out how to help patients from different communities, you know, have access to resources, and it just happened over time. And it, as I evolved, the work I did evolved. And looking back now, you know, bringing women from all over the country to you know to Capitol Hill to lobby and to change policy, 
and amplifying their voices and having black women realize they have the right to speak their minds and the right to have to access health care and and to stop apologizing for the things that are basic human right, you know, to, to health care and equity for all. It just I think when you speak your truth, it's, it's really powerful because I don't think I was doing anything extraordinary. I was just kind of being me. Right. I was just saying that here's what I believe to be just and right and true. And why shouldn't everybody have the same access and affordability to health care? And let's have fun doing it, you know. So for me, having fun doing it meant making things patient friendly. And, you know, like we had launched an event that I loved called Pajama Glam Party. We would wear pajamas to the event and everyone had PJs on and we'd have like, you know, candy canes and we'd have like, you know, cotton candy and of course healthy foods too. You could shop and eat and do and dance and do Zumba and yoga. And by the way, we're learning about, learning about breast health and being your best advocate. So, you know, how do you immerse healthcare in people's lives where they embrace it as something that's empowering, that's fun, and that's, you know, not to be afraid of is kind of how I approached it. And, and it worked. So I think it's just kind of, you know, for people who are listening who want to become advocates or want to use their voice, there's no like template to it. Just figure out what's unique, what's different, and 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 what you want to bring to the world that only you can bring to the world, and and then go for it. You know, you, you triggered me with this, uh, with the anecdote. It's not even an anecdote, with the truth that most of these healthcare institutions talk about patient, 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 but we don't even have a seat at the table. I like to believe that has significantly changed, but I was only made aware recently that there was an initiative like from 10 years ago called Patients Included. And it was kind of like this good housekeeping so you could slap on your event that says we have a patient there and it's a token patient. So let alone having just, <laughs> you know, like the one person, like I've been the token patient, you've been the token patient. Like we're just the, we're there for, for like to be, to be trotted about on a runway and say, we have a patient here. Look at that. Yeah. You, it, it, so it's, you've done something that takes it even a step deeper, which is just don't have just a patient, have a patient of color, have a diverse perspective, put together a patient council, you know? So let's talk about the inclusion pledge. Cause I'm deeply inspired by your, again, let's go back to chutzpah and moxie to get this out there. And it's actually working. So, I always look at what disparities there are, you know, and I want to fix them. So when I began, Tiger Lily was a young woman, and then I began to see the disparity in the med space. And then looking at women women of color who have a 40% higher death rate from breast cancer, more aggressive breast cancers, and less access to care. And so I kept thinking, how do we solve this problem? And so I thought, let's have a listening summit, because what people do in pharma and, and other industries is they... They create a product or a website or whatever, and they say, here, to, and watch this commercial and do this thing. And then here's a brochure, and maybe you'll do that thing. Or here's a unbranded website, and make you do whatever. It doesn't work. What works is figuring out the communities you want to serve, what their specific needs are, and how you can help them co-create solutions. And so I thought, let me see if this will work. So we invited women to D.C., and we flew patients in to listen to the black, the black population and learn what their challenges were. And we learned a lot from those conversations. We learned that they didn't know that there were tables they could be at and how to utilize their voices. And and it, the list went on. So we launched a pledge at San Antonio, myself, along with two of my good friends, Christine Hajjan and Julia Mawes. And the pledge initially was that we wouldn't be at any tables that didn't include a woman of color's experience or any conversations, panels, boards, whatever. We would just say no. And then it kind of worked, but I thought we have to figure out how to make people accountable 
for not taking the pledge. And so I spend a lot of time with my team to figure out how do we, like, what are the segments that affect Black women's lives and health? And how do we make those segmentations accountable? So whether they're policy, pharma, industry in terms of associations, San Antonio Breast Cancer, ASCO, and how do we look at all these systems and make them accountable to looking within and seeing what they're doing right or wrong and what's not working and, and investing in the Black community in a way that created equitable, actionable, systemic long-term change. And so we launched a pledge in June and I sent all my partners an email, friends, and I said, you have to take, take this pledge. It's not, it's not, um, it's not optional. And you have to make, you have <laughs> you to have do something no about choice. it. You have no choice because I am going to manifest that. And, um, they all said, you know, we love how actionable it is. And sometimes people just don't know because some were saying, wow, we did, these are great examples of ways we can make change and we just don't know. Um, and some were kind of like hesitant to take the pledge. And then George Floyd happened. You know, this man got murdered on camera and people got to see what p- black people go through all the time. We have a foot on our neck all the time in terms of health care. We have a system that doesn't work for us, that doesn't work with us, doesn't work by us. And so, you know, it was so hard to see that happen to that man and, and, and see him suffer like that. But it gave people the sense of the invisibility of black people and their and, and black pain. And they began to see how a system has been inequitably set up against us. And so it, it literally, you know, we launched a pledge and all, everything happened and the world got to see the black trauma because it was like too much to contain. And then realizing that they had to make commitments that were led by a black led organization and by somebody who's lived and breathed disparities her whole life. And as a person, and a patient and throughout the healthcare system, and so it's been pretty amazing. Um, in less than a month, we had, we actually, like, no less than two weeks, we had 11,000 commitments on change.org. We now have about 40 companies in pharma who took the pledge. Um, San Antonio Breast took the pledge. And we're creating a healthcare disparities conversation that will be live on the virtual stage. And we're getting associations, corporations, and advocacy groups to commit as well. And it's growing. So it's been pretty freaking awesome <laughs> to see it, you know manifest and grow. And if our listeners want to learn more about the diversity pledge or the inclusion pledge, where can they go? They can go to our website. It's www.tigerlilyfoundation.org. And there'll be a pop-up banner that'll have a link to the page. They can go on the page and they'll learn about how it started, um, why it's important to take the pledge, who's a part of the pledge, and, and how to make actionable change within diverse communities of color. You know, I adore you, but I think I figured out what I adore the most about you just now. What is that? That you said WWW. <laughs> what? We're showing our age. No, what do I say? <laughs> just like what? The tri-dub was killed like 10 years ago. Well, whatever. I still... I'm still 30 in my mind, so <laughs> when, when was it killed, by the way? No one told me. I don't know. <laughs> I didn't get the memo. <laughs> I'm going to start a the death of Tri-Dub pledge myself. <laughs> and I'll sign it. Yes. So, yeah. All right. So, final quick life hack question for our listeners. If you can put this together real quick. Parenting while running a nonprofit during a pandemic uh, in 30 seconds. Uh, lots and lots and lots of wine. 
Mahima Carmel, my dear friend, I'll just call you a unicorn. But for the sake of our listeners, I'll quantify that by saying best-selling author, speaker, coach, cancer survivor, manifester, president and CEO and founder of Tiger Lily Foundation, host of Pure Bliss on Apple Podcasts, <laughs> author of Unicorn Boss, Running Towards Bliss, and why don't you say it? Author of Unicorn Boss, Running Towards Bliss, Staying Authentic, Aligned Zen, and Being Tapped the Fuck In. Thank you for coming on Out of Patience. <laughs> Thanks for having me. <laughs> That's all for today, folks. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review, follow us on social, and tell all your friends to listen. Out of Patience with Matthew Zachary is a product of Offscript Media. Our executive producer is Matthew Zachary. Our senior producers are Jen Horanjeff and Andrew McDowell. Darren Tun is our production intern. It is recorded, mixed, and edited by Matthew Zachary. Our theme music is by the Mike Van Allen Quintet and by Mara. For advertising and media inquiries, email media at offscript.com. Hit us up at contact at offscript.com to share comments, feedback, and make guest recommendations. For more information, visit offscript.com.